I would say like design and technology was in some ways like hip hop for me. It introduced me to all of these things, science and technology studies. It introduced me to the history of political economy and understanding the relationships between something like cybernetics, which I talk about a great deal in the book and neoliberal capitalism and the histories of those things as they run in parallel because that's all underneath this iceberg of the apps that we design and build. Hello, and welcome to Design Adjacent, the podcast that talks about the nexus of design both today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Benny F. Johnson, and today our guest is Zach Kaiser. Zach is Associate Professor of Graphic Design and Experience Architecture at Michigan State University. His research and creative practice examine the politics of technology and the role of design in shaping the parameters of the individual, social, and political possibility. His work has been featured in national and international exhibitions, both writings on topics ranging from the future of arts and higher education to dream reading technologies, appear in both academic and popular publications. So today I'm excited to welcome Zach to our podcast. Thanks, Benny. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here and to talk about the book and possibly lots of other things. I'm excited. I was looking forward to this conversation that we get to explore a lot of topics. But I think we'll start off with talking about the future. And it's a fun topic that that we like to explore and look beyond the horizon. But I think we don't often get to have a longer conversation about the future of design and technology. Talk a bit. What's drawing you to this intersection of design and technology? Ooh, that's a great question. I guess I grew up as like a old school graphic designer, you know, okay. in undergrad, I learned how to make like posters and books, <laughs> right? you know? And uh, so when I went to graduate school at MassArt in Boston, that was the very beginning of me starting to be aware of not only the relationship between design and technology, mm. but like the way that design and technology and how one uses the other or vice versa creates certain ideas about people that then get sort of embedded into society. And that only really started to like congeal as a thought for me as I was working both in the tech world, my friends from grad school and I started a design studio and we often would get subcontracted out to ad agencies to help with their like digital quote unquote capabilities. And it was always interesting doing that work and seeing, starting to see like the impact that was in the early 2010s. And so it was like around the time when everyone was like, oh, there's an app for that, you know? And, right. and I started to wonder like, oh, is there? Like, hmm. That, you know, like I started to get skeptical of that assertion, particularly because I was like helping build the back end of these things. And I remember during that time period, everyone wanted to create an app. Even if there was no reason for an app, you had to have an app and you'd have apps that actually would just reference the site that you could go to anyway. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think the other thing that spurred some of that interest for me too was I interned at Sapient Nitro, which is now whatever, Razorfish, Sapient, something or other, you know, they got eaten up by somebody. And when I was interning there, you know, one of the things that we were talking about all the time was algorithms that were able to anticipate and sort of predict certain things. And like at first I had this sense that was like really great. And then I 
started to think about, I encountered, I would have to say, I got to give a shout out to John Cheney Lippold. He's a scholar here at the University of Michigan and a friend of mine because I reached out to him because I was like, I was really inspired by your work. And he wrote an article that came out, I think in like 2011. It's a really long time ago. And that article totally changed the direction of my career, I think. Talk a little bit about the article. Um, What what really? So it's called it's called a new algorithmic identity, soft biopolitics, and the modulation of control. Quite the title. Um, That's basically quite lovely bedtime reading, right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, But it really it describes the way that basically we acquire algorithmic identities in the databases of the companies with which we do commerce or do business. You could think about like my database entry in Amazon's database, for example. Amazon has some sort of spreadsheet, for lack of a better term, right? When I talk to students about databases, you know, the first thing I say is like, okay, well, let's look at a spreadsheet. And so, Amazon's got this database and I have an entry in it and it has certain properties of data that are related to me. You know, it knows that it probably knows I'm a guy, probably knows or I identify as like a cishet white dude. Probably not in those terms. I don't think their database uses those terms given their relatively reactionary politics. I think like the identity that we acquire. So, what Cheney Lippold's article argues to some degree is that the identity we acquire in those databases has material implications for our everyday lives. Okay. And the inferences and recommendations that those algorithms make about us then shape and tailor, he calls, he says, they tailor our conditions of possibility. Mm. So, like when we rely on systems of algorithmic inference and recommendation all the time, whether it's Google Maps taking you the fastest or perhaps quote unquote safest route to get somewhere. We rely on these technologies, but then they shape what parts of life like we experience and what we don't. And there's like an element of control in that as well. And I remember reading that article and thinking about some of the projects that we were working on at our studio at the time. And it was really a revelation. And that was, I think, sort of where a lot of this got started. So shout out to John. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. In just to speak a little bit more about the article, did it speak about that dissonance that happens when the algorithm is in conflict with what's happening in your life, where we kind of have a control set where my Amazon shopping purchase is really just a combination of identities or in the moment as a dad, I'm purchasing for other people as well, but my experience is a little different outside of it. Did it talk about those moments as well? So, yeah, one of the things that his book, so he maybe six or seven years after that article came out, I was already at MSU. So I'm thinking it was maybe like 2017, his book, We Are Data came out and with NYU Press. And that book is sort of like a, I would say like an expansion of his article. And so he talks about how he might be seen in the databases of these companies. And like, you know, because you do things like purchase stuff for your kids, or like maybe you your browsing behavior correlates to that of a 60-year-old woman instead of a 40-year-old dude, you're advertised to in particular ways as well. I think it has a lot to do with also the relationship between data capture and advertising. So yeah, he addresses that a little bit, probably more so in his book than in the article itself. Well, you know, speak about publishing and, and kind of pushing through in writing. I want to skip ahead to what encouraged you to come up with your latest book. Uh, which has a slightly different, more digestible title, I believe, Interfaces and Us, User Experience Design and the Making of Computable Subject. 
no less important, but you know, more palatable <laughs> of, of the top. Oh, thanks, Benny. <laughs> you know, writing has such a good question. I was talking to um, dear friend and colleague Rebecca Tegmeyer yes. about this very thing. Rebecca's a friend of your pod. So Re- Rebecca's a friend of our pod. Her and Marty are going to be on an upcoming episode with their book as well. Yeah. We love Rebecca. Yeah. Yes. Great. It's a great book. Everybody should go buy it. Collaboration and Design Education. Shout out Rebecca Tegmeyer. Yeah. So Rebecca and I were talking about this and the designers, particularly those of us who come from, especially like who grew up in the sort of, or who grew up under the modernists in design, I would say, right. under the modernist era or under the shadow of modernism, you know, those of us who learned from modernists. I think a lot of us are seen primarily as practitioners and the reflective nature of what we do to some degree has often been foisted on us by the academy. Okay. You have to, you know, like go and give a presentation about your work or whatever, because you need a line on your CV because you have to like right. get tenure or whatever it is, right? And so, to have something like for me, I always knew that making was not the only part of my work, but I didn't really know how to explore whatever the other part of that would be. Like I wasn't really a writer. I didn't identify as a writer necessarily, even until graduate school. And then once I started grad school, I really embraced the explanation part of the work I was doing. Like I was making projects and I was doing sort of experimental design practices you do in grad school. But I was also at the same time encouraged and often forced to write about those things. And so that was the beginning of it. And I found that I really liked writing and I wrote a Mm. journal article in 2014. Um, I wrote a journal article that was published in Design and Culture about copyright law and design. Oh, nice. And I wrote that with my mom, who's a professor of law. And so that changed that again was like another seminal moment, totally changed the game for me. I was like, all right, I love writing. Like, how do I, how do I do more of this? And so the book, I think like and and writing the book kind of came out of my in, enjoyment and my relationship with, I don't know, Karma Gorman, another like amazing design scholar, huge fan of Karma's work. Mm. Karma once told me, she's like, Zach, you're kind of a manifesto writer. And I think that that's sort of true. I think I I write as a part of like putting my work out there and saying, this is what I'm trying to do. I was going to ask you that that question. It's a great way to describe it. I was going to ask you that question of how did you see writing as a part of or service of your creative practice? Yeah, that for sure. It orients me, I would say. Like, I think I always write about the projects I do, sometimes in retrospect and sometimes in advance of the projects. And so, the structure of the book actually, and this was one of the hard things about actually pitching this book. And thank God for Louise over at Bloomsbury for taking a chance on this, because it was really hard to get across what I was trying to do with the book, which is like the book has a series, each chapter basically begins with project, like a reflection and explanation of a project I've worked on, whether it's like an artistic project or a designerly project. And then it uses those as like an entry point to the historical, social, technological, and sort of philosophical discussions Mm. that follow. Mm -hmm. And all of it, of course, centering around this idea of the computable subject. I think it was hard to pitch the book in part because it it wasn't a history book. It wasn't in the realm of science and technology studies, which is like the sort of body of literature that I probably engage with most. But it also wasn't like a design book. But it also isn't an artist monograph. 
but it's also not a pedagogy book, even though I talk about education in the last two chapters. I think it was hard to sell it to a publisher. And that, going back to like designers who write, I think that's a pitfall. And that was like really hard for me is because I don't have, the more I've become a scholar, the more I've gotten into this like middle ground of academia and also like of the design world. Right. It's really interesting. And this part of the conversation, your exploration really speaks to uh, this notion of design adjacency of all these spaces yeah. in which you're touching and looking into design. I love this story. I didn't realize that you'd been writing with your mom, which <laughs> not everyone's mom's a professor of law. Got it. But, you know, but let's just have this conversation of a son writing with his mom. What, what was the most revealing part of engaging with your mom as a professional, professional to professional? I mean, she's, she's part of the reason I would say that I have engaged the wide range of interests that I have. And the reason I've been really committed to doing that, she is, my mom's a super well-rounded, well-read person, and she doesn't confine her intellectual interests to just like her field. And right. so when we were working on the article together, it was so, it was so nice because there was no, I mean, there's no like territorialism. I was like, oh, mom, I found this article. What do you think about this? Like in a law review journal, but I don't know about that stuff. And so she was like, oh, that's cool. You know, what about this? And we've continued that dialogue over the years. Like I'm hoping, you know, we'll see, but I'm hoping to continue to collaborate with her in the future on work around data brokerage firms okay. and looking at the really socially detrimental effects that data brokerage is have and also blockchain and cryptocurrency stuff as well. I'm definitely, I'm in the, shall we say, crypto skeptics camp. That shouldn't be a surprise to you. It, it's <laughs> and it's so, not, but I'm making notes. We're definitely going to have you back for our next conversations around that topic as well. So yeah, you, for you, sure. So I like what, the law. I think the intersection of law, design, technology, and political economy is like a really interesting space. So this is really interesting for me as well. In a past life, I worked a lot with privacy and privacy by design in my work with the Better Business Bureau. We looked at privacy. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that, the topic area of data, privacy, and how that plays into contemporary design. It's so interesting. One of the things that I would say, let's see. So there's a few things. It's sort of like this is a perhaps a multi-layered conversation. When we ask ourselves questions about the data we give up, quote unquote, right? right? There's a few probably important dimensions of that question. So one is the kinds of things that get captured about us, how they get captured and how they relate to us as people. And that's to some degree, some of what my book takes on. I have a kind of in-depth, pretty in-depth and possibly pretty boring for some people, but I really geeked out about it. So it's in the book, exploration of all of the sensors that were inside early models of the Fitbit okay. and the kinds of things required to actually have those like log data about steps and the number of translations that occur in order to actually count something as like a step even. This question of like, is that data, what does it mean to for something to be data about you? And to what degree is that actually not only as Johanna Drucker calls it CAPTA as opposed to data, but also to what degree does that actually reflect anything about the material world around us? So that's like one part of it right. that we can get back to later. The other part is that when you take all this data and you have all these things, there's a really, really good article by a legal scholar speaking of the law named Daniel Solovey 
not sure how to pronounce his last name, S-O-L-O-V-E. Anyway, super cool article. And he says, his article is called, I've got nothing to hide and other misunderstandings of privacy. And he basically argues that we live less in a world that is like 1984, which is like the reference a lot of people talk about. They see, you know, right. we, like we hear in the news, Big Brother all the time. And he says it's less like that and it's more Kafka-esque. And the Kafka story he's referring to is the trial where the main character, Joseph K., gets arrested and he doesn't know what he's being charged with or what his crime is. And basically, Solovey's point is that we have all of these algorithmic systems that are not only capturing all this data, but then correlating it with other kinds of data. Correlating with data, not just about you, but about other people who are supposedly like you. Again, like you know, users like you bought this. And he says that we have no idea at some point how that stuff is being used. And so it almost, yeah. when you say, I have nothing to hide, it's like you actually don't, it doesn't matter. You don't know right. what's happening when all this stuff sort of disappears and these inferences are being made about you. And again, I would say too that that has an effect beyond the individual, that there is a political and like social dimension of that. It's really, really important to think about the other, the more sophisticated, quote unquote, again, like I use these terms um, with some some care, I suppose, you know, when machine learning systems get like more and more sophisticated and especially when we're looking at like the work that's being done with neural networks, there are computer scientists that admit that once something enters the neural network architecture that they've designed, they're not entirely sure how the system they've built makes the inferences that it does or right. does some of the things that it does. There's like these layers of the relationship between the capture of data about people what it means yeah. to have like data about you and then what happens to it. When you have conversations and these are kind of those deep experiences that we have, but they're also, I think, framed by our generational approach as well. How have you seen, you know, the way your students interact to these trade-offs that we have with design technology and privacy with say our generation or say your mother? if you will. Yeah. How have you seen the reactions? Because I can see if we have this conversation going completely being understood by a portion of our population and going over and under the heads of the other parts of our conversation. So maybe before, maybe, okay, I'm going to back up for a second. Before I, before I do that, the one other thing I wanted to say about like the relationship we have to the giving up or not giving up of data about ourselves is the way that that is often used and often weaponized that conversation to obscure like a much bigger conversation, which mm -hmm. is what my book tries to address, which is what does it mean for someone to be understood as a computing machine? Or what does it mean for someone to be understood as nothing but an agglomeration of data that can be understood exclusively by computing? Right. Right. Because that itself, and we can talk about this later, that has a political dimension as well. But when my students, when we talk about the kinds of tools they use and the things they use. One of the things that, I mean, I talked to them a little bit about that comparison between 1984 and Kafka's The Trial. Right. And I think it's a really wide range, right? And they're under to varying degrees, a lot of pressure. Yeah. I would say pressure maybe that I didn't experience in any way right. in undergrad between the massive amount of debt that they're incurring and the increasingly competitive job market, particularly as we watch the tech sector kind of implode, I think like they they have concerns that 
either allow them to bracket certain parts of their life, you know? I also like weirdly think TikTok kind of changed their calculus a little bit with that. I have students who are in the sort of social justice TikTok world and they're just constantly coming to me with like, I had a student yesterday who was talking to me, like we ended up talking about the assassination of Patrice Lumumba because of a TikTok that she was watching about Belgian colonialism. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. What? Let's do this. This is great. So, I think that that, like to some degree, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm giving TikTok too much credit, but I think that to some extent, TikTok changed their calculus with some of the ways that they give up or don't give up data. Right. Interesting. As we talk about data and privacy and design and all these intersections of technology, you visualize all of these points coming together. And it allows me to think about your work, something we were talking about before, your love of music and experience as a DJ and pulling these pieces together. So I'm going to take a little spin off of where we were before and just ask, as you think about writing, design, technology, the future, you've got all these streams coming together. How do you manage that as a DJ? How does your mind work in that moment? The DJ thing has always been there with me. And I think so much about sampling and I think about like the way that this, even this book is constructed because I don't identify really anymore with a specific discipline. Like I teach graphic design and I teach UX because I know how to do it. It's not necessarily that that's the field I personally identify with, but I'm not a trained science and technology studies scholar. I don't have my PhD in STS. So like I'm not in that field either. I'm kind of in no man's land a little bit. And Emotionally, as a faculty member who has, as we all do, extraordinary imposter syndrome, that's really hard. (laughs) But I will say that being a DJ and a producer and someone who cultivated from a very young age, you know, I got my, I bought my first sampler when I was 15. The love of hip hop music, the love of the art of sampling, the art of juxtaposition, the art of resuscitating old things and changing them and manipulating them. Hip hop is the reason that I love all of the music I love now. Hip hop is the reason that I love, I don't know, hard bop jazz. If you think about the reason that I got into, I mean, it's cliche, but like, why do I love John Coltrane? It's not because my dad was playing John Coltrane albums. My dad is a jazz man for sure. My dad is a lawyer also, but he plays the trombone, tuba, baritone, flugelhorn, piano. And so, there was always jazz music on in my house when I was a kid. And I was like, man, dad, that's whack. (laughs) But once I started making beats, I was like, oh, this is amazing. This music is amazing. Same with like funk and soul music, you know? Right. I knew it was there and I enjoyed it, but I, I didn't have the appreciation for any of the things, whether it's like Stax Records or, or even thinking about, you know, like Roy Ayers and just realizing how much everyone sampled Roy Ayers. And I didn't know any of this. And hip hop introduced me to all these things. I would say like design and technology was in some ways like hip hop for me. It introduced me to all of these things, science and technology studies. It introduced me to the history of political economy and understanding the relationships between something like cybernetics, which I talk about a great deal in the book and neoliberal capitalism and the histories of those things as they run in parallel because that's all underneath this iceberg of the apps that we design and build. And so, I think the approach of sampling, the approach of the kind of juxtaposition like we were talking about earlier that Prince Paul was doing on those early De La Soul albums is just that approach is just baked into like how I 
live my life. And sometimes it resonates with folks and sometimes it totally doesn't. Again, that's why I think this book was like hard to sell, hard to pitch to people because it, it did take, it takes that sampling, that producer oriented approach to everything. It's one of the things that we were excited about having you as a guest on this podcast, because what you just described was the energy and the motivation for us creating this adjacent space where we're bringing things together that may not seem like they work on the surface, but are just right. We're going across space and time. I think about that all the time with music, how we enter in in songs and watching my newly minted teenager fall in love with John Coltrane because he's overhearing the samples that I'm playing that's happening or him telling me about British rock and funk in the 60s. And clearly my born after 2000 son was not a part of that experience, but having the conversations about how that music is transported, it really does speak to this area of the adjacency and the kind of creative tensions and opportunities and revelations that come from all of these spaces. I love the fact that we're talking about creating new public policy, creating understanding consumer behavior, talking about user experience, and then the power of design to continually reinvent, morph, and extend itself in all these realms. I think is really great. I also think that question of adjacency is really important when we, when we talk about what is really important in design education right. today. There's not that much information about how design arrived at, especially graphic design and user experience design arrived at defining themselves in the ways that they do along the lines that they do and what they've chosen to sort of include and exclude, Mm. not Mm -hmm. only in their canon, but also in just like literally what students should learn about. And Paul Dorish writes eloquently about this and what he calls the legitimacy trap. And Mm -hmm. basically what he says is in order to be a legitimate field, you have to make certain exclusions. But then to continue to assert that legitimacy, you make these epistemological or like conceptual boundaries, right? This kind of myopia. And then you continue to do that even as the conditions around you change. For me, it's really important to peel off those epistemological blinders from graphic design and user experience design and talk about things like the history of science and technology, the history of political economy, the history of philosophy, thinking about like what shaped our understanding of people. Because when we say like even just the terms we use to talk about people, like when we talk about consumers, that's a really indicative term of how we think about political participation under capitalism, right? right? We say, oh, well, you can vote with your wallet. Well, really, can I? When there's like 300 different kinds of toothpaste I can choose from, but nobody can afford dental insurance? Right. What kind of choice is that? Right. You know? But that mode of political participation and the idea that the horizon of one's political participation is like voting every couple of years and buying stuff, the idea of making a more sustainable world comes to fruition through the purchase of seventh generation toilet paper or something like that. That's done by design Mm -hmm. and that caters to the status quo and it allows neoliberalism to continue to perpetuate itself. And like to some degree, because we're mired in some of the sort of more nitty gritty, shall we say, facets of our discipline, we don't get a chance to back out and be like, wait, hold on. I'm not so sure that this is the direction we should be headed in. And so, I try to give students that opportunity. What surprised you the most with your engagement with students now? I think about how our landscape has changed over the last decade, over the last five years, and definitely over the last three years of our pandemic. What has surprised you in the way students are looking at their role, 
their agency and their craft? It's an interesting question. I like to think about my students. So I, I will say, first of all, the students in my courses come from a really wide range, both of backgrounds, but also of skill sets. Okay. The requirements for the programs that I teach in, because I teach in a couple of different programs and some of my classes are required for students from multiple programs. They come to my classes with really different ideas about what design and technology really are. And so I think one distinction that I've noticed over the years, and it's not inherently, I, again, I hate to generalize about my students because okay. they're all individual and unique right. and wonderful for the most part, is there are students who are in like our UX degree program who I think have a really strong sense of social justice, particularly within the realms of accessibility and institutional language, we'll call it DEI, right? They're interested in diversifying the field of UX practice. They're I think more comfortable talking about computing and technology. And then I have most, some of my like more formally straight up graphic design students who come to interaction design classes or UX classes. And they're more comfortable with the formal properties of graphic design. They're, you know, some of them are like really gifted form makers, but they're not comfortable thinking about how their computer works. Like if I say, okay, we're going to open up terminal. And like, we're going to push things to GitHub through terminal. They're like, wait, what? Am I going to break my computer if I like accidentally type something wrong in terminal? Probably not. You're going to be fine. But like, it's interesting to like see these different levels of engagement depending on what they're taught to. I mean, it's a something of a pitfall too that I, most of the classes I teach, I get students later on in their careers. And so that's actually tricky too. When I teach graphic design one, we live in a totally different world than Joseph Mueller Brockman. We can't do graphic design one in the way that maybe we used to. And so what does graphic design one even mean? What should it be? What should they be learning about? It's really, I, said, I mean, I don't know. It's, that, it's crazy. That's a, that's a great question. I, you know, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts. If you could, if you could remix graphic design one, what would be the three foundational things you would add? If you could remix. Ooh, I like the design. three, I like the limitation of three. Okay. <laughs> to me, I think. One of the first things that we have to do is contextualize the practice of design a little bit within like the history of technology and the history of political economy. So like how does graphic design serve particular interests in the world that we live in, like in let's call it the quote unquote West or quote unquote global North and what's its relationship to the we'll call it like the hegemonic ideology, right? Like what is its relationship to supporting the status quo? And, you know, how, how do you do that as a, as a graphic designer in everyday life and in practice? And then the other thing I would say is systems and mapping. So not from necessarily exclusively a formal perspective, but really thinking about, again, just emphasizing the relationality of things to one another. So w whether it would be diagramming, the investments perhaps the MSU makes in its portfolio of stock and trades. What happens if we look at the public disclosures of MSU's finances? What can we learn from that? And how can you map those against looking at the detrimental effects that some of those companies have on our environment and then visualize that in some way? I think about the work of somebody like Mark Lombardi or a project like They Rule from Josh Ahn and Future right. Farmers. Those things were about mapping, diagramming power and thinking about how power 
exerts itself through multiple channels. And I think that that idea of connectivity and, and mapping and systems is like really, really central to not only design practice, but also being right. able to look at the world and analyze it through a, a lens that is not myopic and doesn't try to mm. put graphic design in this little box, you know? And it's like something we encounter all the time. Like if I remember like working at this big company in Boston and we felt like we were the make it pretty department and everybody came to us to just make things pretty. And I think that oftentimes graphic design education unintentionally feeds into that. And again, it calls into question too, a little bit of like graphic design's ongoing existence as a singular discipline. It's so integrated with so many other things. And I wonder with something like Canva, the third thing I would talk about is platforms and templates and systems for other people to do design. And I would talk to students about that. It's really important to know about. And honestly, like some of those things, some of the automated systems that do some of our work for us, let them do it, I suppose, right? They do, but they lack the heart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think again, like my question would be, where is the heart necessary? To me, it seems as though the kind of designerly activity that we have associated with graphic design for so long may not be where we really need to put our energy in society mm -hmm. right now. Can we push beyond that in order to have the kind of impact that we really need to have, especially in the face of 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming? We're there. And like the urgency of change needs to be reflected in how we talk about what we do as designers. There's this great article by Cameron Tonkinwise called I Prefer Not To, Anti-Progressive Designing. To some degree, it asks, what would an active refusal by designers look like? Do we need to continue to do the things that we're doing? And I think the answer really, if we're honest about it, is no. And that opens up a whole possibility for really transformative change. And so, if you ask me, like, does graphic design one look like? Maybe it doesn't look like what we have come to understand as graphic design under the historical weight of European modernism. And as our world continues to change, for every reason, our design studies and design 101 needs to change. We need to adjust with yeah, that. I, I absolutely. Think, I think we, we see that. I love your approach to thinking about this. And I definitely am going to invite you back. I can't believe we're we've run through our time for this episode of Design Adjacent, but you are coming back, my friend, because we're going to talk. Absolutely. We're going to next time spin a little more music and we're going to talk a bit more about the way in which the work that you're exploring layers and refines and challenges the work we're doing. I mean, I think about this nexus that continues to expand and maybe, you know, we have conversations about professions and the fact that Years ago, you'd have a guild and there was a series of tools and sets and approaches that someone would learn. And that created a guild that provided support and covering for the work in the family. As that expands and as we think about contemporary professions, and design is definitely one, I often think about it. What's helpful for me is to think about the more like our universe, something that's constantly expanding and exploding. So if we look at design 20 years ago, we wouldn't recognize, we won't recognize what design is 20 years from now if we try to think about right. the way in which we've expanded. So I'd love to bring you back and talk some more about this nexus of technology and policy and our political economy along with design and how we shape the future. I'd love to, for sure. Zach, it's been a delight and I know that our audiences has enjoyed this conversation. To have someone as a design educator 
a design leader. And I'm giving you titles. I know you said you fall in no area, which means that you're perfectly adjacent where you're following this space. Yeah. But I thank you for joining us. And I thank all of you for listening to this episode of Design Adjacent, the podcast that truly finds the nexus of both design today and Zach tomorrow. Thank you, man. <laughs> Thanks so much, Benny. Show notes for this episode will be available on AIGA.org. Please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. AIGA's Design Adjacent Podcasts and its contents are the copyright of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited without AIGA's express written permission. My name is Li Shan Huang. Until next time.